Chapter 7 First Relief After our ten weeks of street duties training, we were split up and posted to our first relief. Joining my first proper operational team, or relief as it was called, was even more terrifying than arriving at the police station and going out to meet the public on my first shift. In those days, new probationers tended to be pretty much shunned by the wider team until they'd proved themselves in some way. I can remember well that sense of isolation and loneliness, feeling like everyone hated you just because you were new. Perhaps hate is too strong, but that's how it felt. We were collectively referred to as sprogs, or probbies, and I was derisively referred to as grad, because I had a university degree, which is quite unusual in those days. Those with degrees were considered interlopers, butterfly types who would flit from one non-operational job to another on the way up the greasy pole, completely devoid of common sense, generally clueless, and not to be trusted. So, I had the double handicap of being both a sprog and a graduate. It was a generally accepted rule that the probationers made the tea for the relief at pre-deployment briefings and at mealtimes. This was quite a task as the reliefs could consist of 15 to 20 officers. And if you gave someone coffee when they wanted tea or sugar when they asked for no sugar, you would have to rectify the situation pretty quickly. The only way for someone to escape the tea round was to be so bad at it that they got banned from doing it. The canteen seating arrangements also had a strict hierarchy. The area car drivers and senior PCs would sit together conspiratorially chuckling about something or other. The rest of the relief would sit in their own little cliques. And finally, the probationers sat together. The sergeants would generally muck in with everyone and sit anywhere. And I recall my relief sergeants being mercifully kind towards the probationers. Most of the sergeants had been very experienced PCs before getting promoted, and they had a lot of operational credibility. In those days, few sergeants would get promoted with fewer than five or six years service, and most of them had somewhere between 15 and 25 years service. So they'd seen it all. I spent the majority of my first 12 months as a probationer patrolling on foot. Occasionally, if it was pouring with rain, one of the panda drivers would take pity on you and come and pick you up. But I soon learned the well-rehearsed mantra that a good police officer never gets wet. In other words, if you get wet, you're an idiot because you've not cultivated enough friendly community contacts or tea stops. Or for some officers, lonely housewives. To drop in and visit to stay dry. I soon cultivated my own friendly shopkeepers, pub landlords and store detectives who would give me a cup of tea and who would welcome a chat when it was raining or freezing cold. Eventually, once we would proved ourselves in the rough and tumble of operational policing and shown ourselves to be reasonably courageous, reliable and hardworking, we would be accepted by the relief and permitted to sit with them in the canteen. You would also know that you'd been accepted when the senior PCs took the piss out of you in a friendlier sort of way, after you'd done something silly out in the street. 
For me, this came one Sunday when I came on duty at 7am, after being out in the tiles the night before until about 3am. I left the police station after the morning briefing and started my foot patrol. I was wandering around, still feeling a little worse for wear, when after about half an hour, I started to marvel at how quiet, read silent, the radio channel was. This was very unusual. Eventually, the area car came roaring up beside me and the driver shouted, Oi, grad! The control room has been calling you for ages and you're not answering your radio. It was at this point that I realised with a sinking feeling that I'd left the station without a radio and I'd been wandering around aimlessly in full uniform, like an idiot, with no ability to send or receive messages. Everyone thought it was hilarious. The sergeant gave me a half-hearted bollocking and kindly posted me to the station office for the rest of the shift, where presumably I could do less damage to myself or to the general public. The station office was the most unpopular posting for everyone. Back in those days, we had very few civilians working in police stations. Today it's almost exclusively civilians or police staff, as they're referred to, who staff the station. However, in the 1980s and 90s, it was usually hapless, probationary police officers doing this job. Frequently, they would post an older officer there full-time, someone who'd been ill or injured or couldn't perform operational policing. However, it was often the parole probationers who would get lumbered with a station office posting. Many police stations and front offices have closed now. This is stupid because you end up having to send a fully fit crew of police officers to deal with fairly trivial issues that are reported on the phone, rather than encouraging members of the public to go to a police station, which requires a bit of effort on their part, at which point they would usually decide not to follow the issue up. This unwelcome development has increased demand on response officers, clogging up the command and control system with trivial nonsense and creates an accurate impression in the minds of the public that the police have lost control of the streets and are overwhelmed. This issue is made much worse by inexperienced civilian call handlers based in remote call centres who make little effort to resolve issues on the phone and simply create a new problem that some poor PC has to try and sort out. Trivial nonsense, however, was the staple diet of the station officer who fielded an almost infinite variety of bizarre queries, questions and complaints from members of the public. Typically, people would come in to produce their driving and insurance documents after a traffic collision, or more likely after being required to do so by a patrolling police officer who had been hiding behind a bus stop. The station office was like an amusing social experiment. You would have nervous, law-abiding citizens reporting their stolen lawnmowers and bicycles, sat beside sweaty, foul-mouthed young lads who had just been released from custody and who were waiting for their mate to get released so that they could go out and steal more lawnmowers and bicycles. We tolerated very little bad behaviour in police stations in those days, and more than once I can remember drunken, abusive youths being physically dragged over the inquiries counter for the offence of disorderly behaviour in a police station, contrary to the Town Clauses Act 1847, and deposited straight into the cells. I don't think this piece of legislation is ever used anymore, which is a great shame, 
because arresting people who behaved like this demonstrated that there was a line and that crossing that line had consequences. It was also very entertaining to watch, particularly if the little scrote had just been released from custody and find himself dragged back over the counter and returned to the nice warm cell that he'd been occupying a few minutes before. We used to get some very odd requests from members of the public who saw us as having supernatural abilities to solve every conceivable problem in life. On one occasion, as a very young and inexperienced station officer, I was visited by an old boy carrying a large cardboard box which he placed gently on the front counter. He told me that he'd find an injured pigeon and opening the box, sure enough, inside was a large, smelly, feral pigeon sitting there with an obviously broken wing. The old boy asked me if I could call the RSPCA and ask them to look after it. So being unsure what to do, I suggested that he take a seat whilst I checked with my superiors. I took the box into the sergeant's office and spoke to the duty station sergeant, who peered into the box, wrinkling his nose with distaste. He picked the box up and said, I'll show you what you need to do before he carried it out into the rear yard. Then, to my surprise, he took the pigeon out of the box in one of his meaty hands, pulled his truncheon out of his pocket on the side of his uniform trousers, and swiftly bludgeoned the bird to death, before throwing it into a skip. There you go, mate. Sorted. Slightly horrified, I asked, but what'll I tell the bloke at the front counter, Sarge? He rolled his eyes and told me to follow him. He walked back into the front office with me and called over to our pigeon rescuer. Hello, mate, he said to the old boy. Listen, thanks a lot for bringing the pigeon in, but there's no need to call the RSPCA now. The wing wasn't broken, just dislocated. So I popped it back in and it's flown away. Good as new. The old boy looked delighted, thanked us profusely and off he went, happy as Larry. I now know that feral pigeons are basically flying rats and they carry lots of nasty diseases, so I don't feel too bad about it. Station officer night duty was dreadfully dull. There were generally only three categories of people who came into the police station in the middle of the night. Firstly, there were those in genuine distress for some reason or other, and these people were immediately given help. The second category were drunk, and thought that we were a glorified taxi service that would take them home, which we refused to do, obviously. Finally, there were those collectively and unflatteringly referred to as nutters. Remember, this was 1990, and a long time before political correctness had arrived. They were generally harmless individuals with mental health problems, who were fixated with police stations, police officers, police cars, Police radios, police procedures. I think you're getting my drift. They were cheerfully tolerated if it was quiet, when they would be humoured until they became annoying, at which point you would suddenly pretend to be very busy or you would hide somewhere until they got bored and wandered off. It was often tricky to tell the difference between the nutters and the local MP or some other self-important buffoon of a councillor who would often pop into the police station to raise morale or show how much they cared about law and order. 
On one occasion in Birmingham many years later, when I was an inspector, I had been humouring a very scruffy, pompous and eccentric visitor to the police station for at least ten minutes before being told that he really was a local MP. Personally, I prefer dealing with the genuine nutters. My favourite nutters were a bloke and his wife in their fifties who used to come into the Sutton Police Station office every night at about 3am and hand over a thick brown envelope addressed to a specific inspector. I would dutifully put the envelope into that inspector's pigeonhole every time until one night that particular inspector was actually on duty. He came in, threw the envelope on the desk in front of me and shouted, For God's sake, stop putting this shite in my pigeonhole. Tell them to address it to the new chief inspector. I opened the envelope and found about 20 sheets of A4 paper inside. On each sheet there were hundreds and hundreds of car registration numbers written in tiny handwriting on both sides of the paper. That night when the couple came in, I told them that Inspector Taylor was no longer dealing with their information and that in future they should address the envelope to Chief Inspector Roberts, who would be very happy to receive it. And so it would go on until Chief Inspector Roberts had had enough and ordered the envelope to be addressed to the newest inspector on the division. After a time, and once the rest of the team had accepted us, we would eventually be given the kudos of working as the operator in the area car Zulu 4. This was an incredibly daunting experience for someone fairly new to policing, as you were expected to multitask operating both the local radio channel, the main RT set which communicated with Scotland Yard operators, whose call sign was MP. You also had to navigate for the driver if they weren't sure where they were going, and do all the paperwork. A good area car crew was expected to do two things well. Firstly, to respond to 999 calls for assistance and turn up quickly. The second expectation was to patrol their patch proactively day and night to stop criminals on foot and in vehicles. The skill of the area car drivers was impressive to say the very least, but it isn't easy to describe unless you've experienced sitting alongside them. The Metropolitan Police Driving School has the reputation of being the best in the world and it routinely turned out drivers who would have likely been able to hold their own against some of the very best racing drivers. Their main skill, and this is what was truly impressive, was that they drove safely in all weathers, in cars that had been designed to take a family of four out on a shopping trip, and had remarkably few accidents on busy public roads. They were powerful cars, but they were basically bog standard models with police livery, blue lights and radio equipment installed. However, the area car drivers squeezed every ounce of horsepower, braking ability and tyre adhesion out of those cars to get from point A to point B ridiculously quickly. The best police drivers had an uncanny ability to see and anticipate hazards in the road, preempting the actions of the driver of a stolen car or the thinking of pedestrians and other drivers. I loved being the area car operator and never felt more alive than when travelling at high speed on blues and twos on the way to an urgent call, weaving through traffic, feeling the car drifting through corners and wondering what awaited us when we arrived. It was an adrenaline buzz on steroids. Pursuing stolen cars was often frantic. In Sutton this happened quite regularly and usually involved bandit vehicles being chased at over 120 miles an hour. 
before an inevitable foot chase of the occupants through back gardens, streams and industrial estates. Usually the suspect would be tracked and fined by police dogs or the infrared cameras of Indian 99 before being dragged from their hiding place, scratched, muddy and bleeding, from running through thorny brambles and crawling under bushes. It always amused me that whilst being handcuffed, they would often indignantly protest their innocence, bitterly complaining that they'd only just been walking home from the pub and they didn't know anything about a stolen car or a stash of stolen jewellery and watches found ten yards from where they were hiding. The second task of the area car was to proactively patrol and catch criminals in the act, which was where policing became a real art, and a good police officer eventually developed what to young and inexperienced officers appeared to be an almost supernatural ability to sniff out criminality. Regrettably, these skills have been largely lost in an age where police officers are now either too scared to stop and search people or too busy trying to deal with a multitude of issues that the police service should almost certainly not be dealing with. The withdrawal of funding for a whole range of support agencies in the past 10 years now means that the police end up handling all sorts of social issues that they're ill-equipped and untrained to deal with. For example, dementia patients, out-of-control children, those suffering with mental illness and alcoholics and addicts living in squalor. As ex-Chief Superintendent and author John Sutherland recently stated, it makes perfect sense to blame the police for things that go wrong in society because it means that we don't have to trouble ourselves with the real causes of the problems we face or do anything to address them. Most law-abiding citizens just want to know that should they need to dial 999, the police will turn up quickly to help them in their hour of need. Sadly, the police are now generally too busy dealing with petty squabbles over Facebook posts or babysitting people having a mental health crisis to rush to a burglary in progress or proactively spot, search and arrest someone who's just been released from prison and is walking down the road carrying a bag full of drugs and knives. In September 1989, a couple of months after I arrived in Sutton, the London Ambulance Service went on strike and the police and army were asked to step in and provide a temporary ambulance service until things were resolved with the unions. A request came out for people to put themselves forward to be trained as paramedics and, like an idiot, I volunteered. This turned out to be a bit of a foolish decision. It was motivated by a desire to do my bit, but it was also motivated by the promise of overtime because we would be on 12-hour shifts and there'd be lots of rest days cancelled, so we would definitely make a few quid. I was saving for a deposit for a flat, so it was no brainer. The training course was a joke. It lasted two or three days, and then we got a big box of bandages and latex gloves, and were paired up with an army squaddy driver or a fellow police officer who would drive a station van, which is fine for delivering bread or transporting angry drunks, but totally unsuitable for use as an ambulance. The army guys drove green army battlefield ambulances that were based on long wheelbase Land Rovers. These had the road holding of a large mahogany wardrobe on casters and were absolute death traps, particularly when driven at speed. The army guys were completely gung-ho driving these bloody things and they had got it into their heads that because they were with the police, 
they could go straight through red lights at speed without braking or giving way. I did these shifts exclusively as a temporary paramedic almost every day for about five months, and it was really quite traumatic. We had a lot of people die in front of us, and we felt totally ill-equipped to help them sometimes. Some calls would involve us having to get very overweight people down many flights of stairs in carry chairs, huffing and puffing and nearly breaking our backs as we went. Sometimes we would only have a stretcher which was made of canvas that had likely been in service since the Second World War. It was frequently like something out of a Laurel and Hardy sketch, with the poor old patient desperately clinging on to the sides of the stretcher, sliding up and down it as we negotiated steps and stairs and steep slopes. We probably caused more harm than good most of the time. Other calls would be dealing with someone who had suffered really serious injuries in a road traffic accident or a fall, and we had no ability to relieve their pain or treat them properly. I was very glad to get back to police work when the strike finished in the spring of 1990. I've had a massive respect for paramedics ever since those days, because it can be a truly horrible job. I spent about 18 months at Sutton learning the basics of policing. However, very quickly, I became a bit disillusioned. There were plenty of decent, hard-working officers there, but there were also a lot who had clearly opted for an easy life in the suburbs. Some of these were officers who had become a bit burnt out from working in the busier parts of London and were now bringing up their families in a quieter area. However, many of the Z district officers were just lazy. Some of them seemed to resent doing even the bare minimum and would dodge confrontation and ignore blatant lawlessness to avoid arresting someone so they could finish work on time. I was jealous of many of my old classmates from Hendon who had been posted to gritty inner city districts. They talked about the busyness of where they worked and some of the crazy situations that they often find themselves in. To explain this in simple terms, imagine London as an onion. In the very centre you have the well-known iconic sites which are busy in terms of the 24-7 buzz of shoppers, drunks, nightclubs, businesses and tourism. In pure policing terms, these areas are fairly non-threatening and reasonably peaceful. Then there are layers stretching outside of the centre, where there are greater levels of urban deprivation and poverty, which create many of the conditions for higher levels of crime and disorder, drug dealing, urban street gangs, and more serious violence involving guns, weapons and knives. Finally, the outside layers of the onion are a wide band of outer London areas stretching from the suburbs into the semi-rural districts where you have mixed policing environments similar to Sutton. I'm not a sociologist or a geographer, but I suspect that this is a common theme in every major conurbation on earth. I wanted to experience policing in the middle layers of the onion. So without hesitation, I submitted a request to transfer to L district on the day I got confirmed as a constable, after passing my two-year end of probation exams. This came as no surprise to my sergeant, who told me privately that I would probably learn more in a month on L District than I'd learned in all my time in Sutton. A few days later, I discovered that my request to transfer had been successful. I was going to Clapham. <laughs>